This morning we come to really, if you hear John 3, you're probably thinking, well, that's like the most famous chapter in the whole Bible. Well, yeah, most evangelicals know it very well. At least one verse in there, right? John 3.16, yeah, absolutely. So at least among Bible Christians uh, and people who love the gospel of Jesus, John 3 is pretty special. This chapter contains the most important message a human being can hear. That's why it's so critical. And in a way, it's the perfect contrast, this chapter, between religion and salvation. Yeah, you heard me right. The contrast between religion and salvation. The Bible does not take a positive view of religion. Well, wait a minute. The Bible's all about God, right? So, I mean, it's got to be pro-religion. Well, no, not in the way I'm talking about it. It, it. God is not an endorser of religion. In fact, the Bible views religion as a substitute for God that human beings cling to. It's a way to avoid God, not come to him. So last week we were looking at Jesus cleansing the temple in chapter 2, and we touched on a really important reason that he needed to cleanse the temple. It's because religion had taken over God's house, and he had to put a stop to it. In that particular case, the, the place that God ordained for Israelites to worship him was being used as a tool to get rich, which some religions do that too. Some versions of Christianity do that too. In this case, um, God wanted that stopped, and so Jesus went in there and shut it down for the day. It's because the men that were charged to help people to help them find God, we're helping themselves. And that's religion. Even if you're a high priest and have the highest position in the Bible to oversee worship, you can have as little regard for God as the leader of a street gang. Being a high priest doesn't make you a faithful person in God's house. There's a lot of wickedness in the world. So I hope it's okay, but I would like to share with you this morning the truth of the world according to the Bible. Do I have your permission? Thank you. Good. I'd like to do that. I don't know what I'd do if you said no. <laughs> the Bible's a really big book, but, but the first three chapters answer the big questions. And the big questions are what is life about? What's going on? Why is the world the way it is? And why are human beings so amazing and so pathetic at the same time? You, you, I mean, the same person. Why am I amazing and pathetic at the same time would be a way to ask that question. Well, the Bible's answer in the first three chapters of the Bible are God made the universe. That's what it's all about. Human beings are made in the image of God. That's why we're amazing. And human beings walked away from God. That's why we're pathetic man fell, right? That's the big picture. Man makes up his own gods, his own religion to suit himself and that has led to a complete disaster. Man-made religion is just that. It's man-centered and that's what all the ancient religions were all about, all the pagan religions. What can the gods do for me? That's the typical religious way of approaching life. Well, I, I, need, I need some help so I turn to this being who exists to please me and to give me good things. 
I worship the gods to bring me good fortune. So most religion is just superstition like that. The God of the harvest, if I can win him over to my side and make him happy, my crops will grow. The God of healing, I can appeal to him for my ailments or ailments of my family. The God of the sea can protect me as I fish or travel by sea across the thing. He'll, he'll protect me. The an my ancestor's grave has to be cared for so their dead spirits won't harass me and give me a hard time for not honoring them properly. Pleasing the unseen powers so things go my way. That's religion. That's ancient religion. And that's still pretty much what it is. Manipulating the spiritual realm for my benefit, for my favor. Some form of that was universal in the entire world. Entire world. Except in one place. This little place called Israel. That was totally different. Now they behaved like that a lot of the Israelites as I read to you this morning from Jeremiah. But in terms of who God is and what life's all about, completely different. The God of Israel didn't need anything. The God of Israel is different than all the other gods. He made us. He's self-existent. He's eternal. He's eternally at peace with himself. He has no needs to be supplied. So you can't bring him things that'll make him happy all of a sudden. He's not that kind of a God. He made us. He made us special. He made everything. He rules everything. There's not, he's not the God of the sea or the God of the trees or the God of the rocks. He, he made everything. The entire universe is his. He made it all. And he made us and he made us special. He didn't make us like cats. He didn't make us like dogs. He didn't make us like gorillas. He didn't make us like bears. He made us completely unique in his image. So unlike animals, human beings can reason. We can create art. We can imagine and design everything from housing to clothing to useful tools. And he gave us the gift of language so we could actually express our reasoning and our exploration and our creativity with each other. We can write a song and teach it to someone else and write it down. You know, birds sing beautiful songs, but it's the same old song. <laughs> they aren't creative. And we can verbalize our thanks and our love to God, the creator who made us. And we're moral creatures because God is moral. Even if we're so depraved, if we're at the bottom end of humanity, the sex slavery bottom end of humanity, if we're that, those kind of people, we still believe in right and wrong. We just believe, the worst person believes that right is what satisfies me and wrong is what doesn't. And if, if you take my slave away from me, you're wrong. And I'm upset with you, right? They believe in some sort of fair. Even the worst people have a morality. Most of us have a higher morality mainly because of Christian influence on our world. But we are moral creatures because God is moral. We can't help but be moral creatures. So humans are the greatest thing in creation by far and the most tragic things in creation because we fell so far. We, we had this gift of choice and we chose to go our own way. So all of our problems are the result of this choice to go our own way. Following Satan, actually, it was his idea. And the Bible says we became inventors of evil and pervert everything that's good. But we still worship. 
We worship whatever we think will fulfill our personal desires, good or evil. Now because we rebelled, God, because God is pure goodness and perfect righteousness, he could have destroyed humanity right then, right when humanity rebelled, just destroyed them, our ancestors, and that would have been perfectly just, but he didn't do that. So here's the good news, God's love is as strong in him as his holiness and justice is, so he launched this plan of redemption and the plan centers around God's son becoming flesh. That's what we've been talking about in the early chapters of John. He joined himself to us living a perfect life and then he's offering up that life to God's justice as a sacrifice on our behalf. So John's gospel has been slowly unveiling this plan, this plan of redemption. And in John chapter 3 it becomes crystal clear the plan of redemption. That's because Jesus has a conversation with the leading teacher of Israel. And we get to hear part of that conversation. The guy that comes to him is a member of the great council. He's a ruler in Israel. He's not only a theologian and a spiritual leader, he's a political leader. So this man is the epitome of man-made religion. In his case, it's taking the truth of God and twisting it into a system that makes unrighteous men believe that they are righteous. That's the system he was caught up in. That was his religion. The man's name is Nicodemus. Is he a monster? Is he a horrible person? No, as far as we know among men, he's a, a good guy, a respectable man, earnest in what he believes in. And John tells us who he is in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, oh, we learned something about him right there, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So a ruler means he sat on the Supreme Council of 70. Those were the guys that were the uh, political body in charge of Israel with the high priest sort of over them or overseeing them. And then they made the big decisions. They were a court of appeal. They were the Supreme Court of Israel, functioned in all of those ways. It was called the Sanhedrin, this council. And we find out Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Not everybody on the council were Pharisees. There were Sadducees and Pharisees and other kinds of Jewish sects. But the Pharisees were a particular sect that was probably the most respected among your average Jewish person in the, in the country. In terms of doctrine, they were very strong. They had important views, many correct views. They believed that God was sovereign. They believed that human beings have an immortal soul. They believed that men are morally accountable to God. They believed there would be a resurrection of the body and a future judgment. The Sadducees didn't believe in that stuff. But, as Bible commentator William Hendrickson says, quote, they made one basic and very tragic error they externalized religion. And that's probably the simplest way to describe a Pharisee. They externalized religion. For Nicodemus, salvation comes by a careful observance of the law and following the traditions of the elders. That's how a person is saved. That, they believed, made them righteous. So life was built around keeping the Sabbath, around rigorous tithing down, down to the very tiniest things, ceremonial cleanliness, fasting, eating kosher, observing the holy days. That was the goal of life, outward conformity to the law. Now most people couldn't keep those rules, but they did. The Pharisees kept all of them 
And to show how separate they were from everyone else, they added rule after rule after rule on top of the rules that Moses gave in the Bible. And they tried to keep those too. At least they said they did. So they set themselves up as more righteous than other people. And you know what? People kind of bought into that. They thought they were more righteous. That's why they were respected. And they loved the respect. They loved that idea that people thought that they were righteous. They loved it. So most of your average person, your average Jew couldn't keep all those little extra rules, those detailed rules. But the Pharisees kept them to show how separate they were from everybody else. They set themselves up as better. Jesus said as he came on the scene and observed the Pharisees his whole life long and when Jesus started his ministry he talked about them quite a bit. He said their main concern was not obeying God's law but their main concern was being seen by other people as righteous. In fact Matthew chapter 23 there's a whole chapter blasting the Pharisees. And Jesus has a special name for them. It's a Greek word. Hypocrites. And we get our word hypocrisy from it. But it's the Greek word for actor. They were performers. Performers of righteousness. So people would think they were righteous. A Pharisee was not a humble sinner. Before God. Even though they sinned just as much as any of us do. So God wasn't their audience. That was the problem. Other people were their audience. So they can be very puffed up. Now that doesn't mean there were no humble men or earnest men that were Pharisees because they are. In fact some places in the New Testament some Pharisees ask Jesus some very profound questions and they interact with him in a good way. And he's impressed with them. But they're, they're few. But hypocrisy was the norm. Spiritual pride was the norm. And many Pharisees will hate Jesus because he exposes that in their religion. And it didn't take very long for many Pharisees to call Jesus a demo, demo, demonic man. A possessed man. They even start to wanting to, they start seeking a way where they can kill him. That happens pretty early. Hasn't happened yet in the story, but it's coming. That hatred for Jesus, it's pretty amazing. Now Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Why would he come at night? Well, some people think he didn't want other people to know. My guess is I don't see a sinister motive necessarily. He doesn't say anything sinister about it. But there, there really isn't a movement against Jesus. So I don't know who he'd actually be hiding from. Uh, so far there isn't. I mean the Sadducees hate Jesus. But the Pharisees hate the Sadducees. So that, that wouldn't. I mean when Jesus cleansed the temple. That was more of a getting in the face of Sadducees there. But I think he comes by night because frankly Jesus pretty much dominated the temple for the whole Passover feast and everybody wanted to see him and be around him and he was doing miracles so when do you get a good conversation when that's going on right? I actually think he came to him at night to actually have a conversation with him. He could never have a real conversation in the temple. So he starts the conversation with a very courteous and respect, respectful greeting. Verse 2 he calls him rabbi. Which means teacher. He's acknowledging Jesus as a rabbi even though Jesus didn't go to any of the proper schools. So he's coming as one teacher to another teacher. And he says rabbi we know we being him and his other acquaintances at least on the council or the Pharisees that he knew. We know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
So we talk a lot about signs in the Gospel of John, right? Those are miracles. That's John's word for miracles. Jesus did some miracles during that very first time he presented himself in the temple. But he's recognizing that. It's clear to him, he says, that Jesus was sent by God as a teacher. And that's why he's come. I really don't have any reason to doubt that that's why he's come. He, I think that's a good thing that he's coming. Now, some people see him just flattering Jesus or being condescending. I don't see that here. I think he wants to understand Jesus because I think he thinks God is doing something through him. So, he's coming to Jesus with a Pharisee's theology and a Pharisee's view of salvation and that's why Jesus responds to his nice statement to him the way he does. It's kind of shocking and um, it sort of jumps out at you. I mean, you know, I know John takes conversations and makes them just a few lines, but even with that idea that we're just getting bits and pieces of the conversation they had, what Jesus says to him after he says, you know, I know that you're from God and you're a teacher, it just, it just jumps out at you. It's, it's kind of surprising. Verse 3, Jesus says, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, I just said hi. <laughs> Let me read that one more time. Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Those are probably the most important words you will ever hear. That's what, is, that's what Nicodemus needed. So Jesus knew these are the words that this very pious, deeply religious man, well regarded as a teacher of the scriptures and the theology of his people. That's what he needed. Jesus knew that. Now is that what Nicodemus wanted? It's hard to say what he wanted. But I think maybe he did feel that something was missing. There was something about the whole faith system of which he was a very highly placed person in it. That religion that wasn't there. Maybe there's more that God required. I'm trying to think like a Pharisee here. Maybe things he didn't know that maybe Jesus could enlighten him on or things he ignored or things that he had minimized that are really important and maybe Jesus would have some insight into that. I think he thinks Jesus might have some answers for him and he does. It's no accident, it's no accident that chapter 2 ends with the, this sentence, chapter 2 verse 25. He, Jesus, did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. So he knows what's in Nicodemus' heart and what he needs and he's speaking to that. And I think Jesus saw that Nicodemus was looking for something without Nicodemus even saying a word about what he was looking for. So perhaps Jesus saw that he was looking for certitude about his being in the kingdom. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Which brings up the question, how can a man ever know if he's saved or not. How can you really know, right? So Jesus answers that. Even a theologian might ask that question. How am I saved? How do I know that I'm saved? So if he's seeking for certitude with regard to his salvation, Jesus is offering it. Verse 3 again, truly, truly. By the way, you know, Jesus says that when he's about to say something that's really important and absolutely true. Absolutely true. He used, it's, it's the double amen. 
So you can't tell in an English Bible, but in the Greek Bible, it's amen, amen. That's the word for truly. It's a Hebrew word. It's not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word that just carried over into Christian Greek language. Just like it's it's not an English word either, but we say amen when we pray, right? It's exactly the same word. If you put amen at the end of something, it means so be it or let it be true. If you put it at the beginning of something, you're saying this is absolutely true, what I'm going to say. And that's how Jesus is using it here. So the amen at the beginning of the sentence means verily or surely or truly. It's an expression of confident truth. So what is Jesus so sure about? That Nicodemus or Wayne or you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That's it. The new birth is essential for salvation. So here we have this pious, observant, dutiful, respectful, polite, once born man who is not fit for the kingdom of God. He will never see it, he's saying. Not as he is. He cannot see it. And Jesus uses that word cannot. It's the word dunamis in Greek. It's a, it means ability or power. You don't have the ability to do something. It's not a word of prohibition. He's not saying you're prohibited from seeing the kingdom. He's saying you can't see it. You don't have the ability to see it as you are. It's like a blind man is not forbidden from seeing a beautiful moonlight at night. He's not forbidden. He just can't. Doesn't have the power. And that's the word he's using here. So Nicodemus cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Or you could translate that properly, born from above. Though both of those are legitimate. Now in this case, the word see might be a little confusing. What does he mean by see the kingdom? So we'll get to that in a minute because he's going to fix that for us. Jesus is going to explain it more. So now look at verse 4. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, I don't think Nicodemus is so stupid that he thinks Jesus is actually suggesting that. He's kind of using a playful theological way of asking a question to say, I don't get this at all. He might be saying something like or meaning something like, this doesn't make sense to me, what you're saying. I'm an old man, how can I be born again? That kind of an idea. And so maybe he says it with a little smile. How can a man be born when he is old? You know, he's asking that question. So Jesus clarifies, verse 5. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So now he's defining the word see as enter. That's what he means, being part of it. So Jesus says he cannot do that. He has no ability to do that. But this time he's not saying you cannot, he doesn't have the ability to see. He's saying you don't have the ability to enter. So that's what it means by seeing, being a part of it, being in it. So see the kingdom in verse 3 means enter it. And I think Jesus uses that word because Nicodemus used that word in verse 4. 
A man cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And be born truly. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, you will be excluded if you are not reborn. And no, we're not talking about physical birth here. One must be born of water and the Spirit. So Jesus is talking about a theological idea that we call regeneration. That's just a long way of saying born again, a new birth. It's an act of God that awakens your heart to the truth. That's what regeneration is. If you're a human being and a sinner, you can only be saved by God's grace and God's grace works through regeneration. That's how God saves people. We talked about regeneration a while ago because John introduced the idea of being born anew in chapter 1. In fact, in his prologue he did that. John chapter 1 verse 11, you remember that? He's talking about Jesus. He says, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So God exercises his will to bring forth a new birth. And those people are the children of God. Those who can legitimately call themselves children of God are those who are born of God. That's what John taught us way back in chapter 1. And now it's coming out in Jesus' teaching. You might want to turn to Titus chapter 3. That's a little book in the New Testament. Just a little bit before Hebrews. That's one of the most comprehensive explanations of salvation in the Bible. From the Apostle Paul. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. He's describing salvation. If you don't know the Lord, you need to know this. So pay attention. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Pharisees, you're gone already. Right? Because they were counting on their righteousness. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. But according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration. And the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow. There's a lot there and I'm not going to get into all of it but what does he say? Not our works. Not our works but the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's how God's grace saves us. And when he does that, it produces this faith. And that faith justifies us. So that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, a man whose entire life is devoted to being saved by works. So I should address briefly Jesus' use of the word, the, the phrase wa water in the spirit in verse 5 back in John 3. Remember that? Water in the spirit. Stay here for a second in Titus. Some people believe that um, water... There's a couple ways this has been interpreted. One is the 
simplest way is that, oh, being born by water is the first birth and being born by the spirit is the second birth. That's kind of a logical way to deduce that because you do kind of come through water right when you're born. Some believe water is baptism. I don't think so, but the Catholic Church teaches what's called baptismal regeneration. That's why if you're a little baby and you're born to a Catholic family, they want to get you under the water or sprinkled under the sprinkle as fast as they can, right? Because you're not really saved until you have that. You're, it's called baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that because Paul doesn't say a word about it there in Titus or anywhere else. In fact, Paul said, I came to preach the gospel, not to baptize, which kind of goes against that whole idea. But anyway, as I read Paul in Titus chapter 3, did you catch how he describes regeneration in action? The washing of regeneration. The washing. The spirit washes and renews. That fits right in with a wonderful Old Testament prophecy that Nicodemus should know very well, but seems to have ignored. Otherwise, he'd go, oh when Jesus talked about being born again. So now let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is one of two detailed Old Testament passages promising regeneration to Israel because they have proven that they cannot and will not follow and obey God on their own. So one of those passages is Jeremiah chapter 31 where he literally uh, prophesies a new covenant. That God's going to make a new covenant. But the other one is Ezekiel 36. And I want to look at the Ezekiel 36 one. So. Wow. Listen for the language. Describing regeneration. As God promises a full and beautiful restoration. For the people of Israel when Messiah comes. Okay. Ezekiel 36 24. I will take you from the nations. Remember they'd been scattered. Gather you from all the lands. And bring you into your own land. Then I will. What? Sprinkle clean water on you. There's the connection with water again. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. From, and from all your idols. Moreover. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. Who's doing all this? God is. I will. I will. I will. Verse 27. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Verse 28. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Who's going to do all that? That's correct. I will. I will. I will, says the Lord. So Israel will obey because God will give his people a new heart and a new spirit. He will give them a spiritual heart transplant. He's going to take out the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He will even put his own spirit in them. So listen, if, if you love and follow Jesus Christ today, that's what God did to you. That's what he did to you. That's what happened. Oh, I thought I was just really sharp. No. No, he did that. He granted you the new birth. Regeneration. Now Jesus expects Nicodemus to know this prophecy 
about cleansing, water, and the new heart, regeneration. So Ezekiel's where water and the spirit come from, I think, in verse 25 there, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And then verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I think that's what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus should have known that. That should have been the hope of his life. If I was a Pharisee teacher of the Bible and I was reading through Jeremiah 31 and then Ezekiel 36, I'd be thrilled. I'd be waiting for the Messiah. What is he exactly waiting for? I'd be waiting for this new birth. I'd be waiting for cleansing, but that's not quite where he is. So Jesus is using that language he he should have been very familiar with. So Ezekiel has his answer, and so he's pointing him there with that kind of language. Now, let's go back to John 3 and listen to Jesus develop this more so Nicodemus can understand it. John chapter 3 verse 5 Truly, truly, there it is again Amen, amen I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God Verse 6 That which is born of flesh is flesh That which is born of spirit is spirit, he says So physical birth is flesh begetting flesh, right? So that's why it's so silly to even think, well, can I go back into my mother's womb? That kind of idea. Doing that again, if you did go back into your mother's womb, what would it produce? Flesh. Wouldn't change a thing. To be born again is to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God. Perhaps at that very moment, Nicodemus had kind of a stunned look on his face. Wow, this is all so new, you know? Because verse 7, Jesus says, do not be amazed. (laughs) Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. This is right in your Bible. Nicodemus really had no idea. He, he never thought about these things before deeply. He lived his life in a Pharisee's world of rule making and rule keeping and your reputation. He never saw that he needed a new heart. But every human being on this planet needs a new heart. Everyone. So Nicodemus is struggling with these ideas. He doesn't think this way. He's never met anybody that thinks this way. And from my limited experience with Jewish friends that I know, they don't think that way either today after all these years. Nicodemus thinks keep the forms, follow the structures provided by the rabbis, don't worship idols, and everything will be all right. But he came to Jesus, I think, because that really isn't enough. And something in him knew it. And of course, I think the Spirit of God was drawing him. So maybe he sensed that it wasn't enough, all of that. So now he hears about being born of the Spirit, and he wonders what that looks like. So Jesus offers him a really cool analogy for it so he can understand it. Maybe they were sitting outside in the cool of the evening, and... Maybe a a, a little breeze came by and rustled some leaves around them or something. But Jesus says in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now that's, what's great about that is not only the imagery here. I mean, it's right, it's right. You don't actually see wind, right? Well, yeah, I do all this dust blowing. No, that's dust you see. You don't see the wind, right? 
You see its effects, but you don't see the thing itself. That's what the spirit is like. You don't see the spirit. But he does amazing things. He changes your life. He changes your heart. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. We can't decide what the God's spirit is going to do. He is sovereign. And he moves according to God's gracious will. So what's great about it, it's not just the imagery, but, um, but there's a linguistic parallel here as well. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. And that's, that came, carries over into English, that, that Greek word, like pneumatic. If you have a pneumatic tool, it's in some way air-powered, right? This air pressure makes it work. Pneumatic, that's, that's the idea there. So the word for spirit is pneuma in Greek, and the word for wind is pneuma in Greek. So it's exactly the same word. So it's an easy connection for Nicodemus to make there. The leaf blows by. The branches are swaying. The clothes on the clothesline are flapping. That's the wind. But when it happens inside us, it's the spirit. It's a great picture. And the words are a great picture. Also, the word for sound in Greek is exactly the same as the word for voice. So when he says you hear the sound of it, that could mean voice as well. That word could mean the same thing. So the spirit of God is operating in the realm of your spirit. It's like the wind in the material realm. You see the effects of the wind and you hear it, but you don't see the wind itself. Just so, the new birth, a man is a new creature in his spirit. He is moved, he is changed, he starts thinking differently. The things he loves changes. He speaks differently, he starts to act differently. So you can see the effects. The new birth itself is quiet, but powerful. It's spiritual heart surgery that God is doing in people and he's bringing life. And the voice of the spirit, the sound of the spirit, he's speaking, the voice is speaking not to our ears, but to our spirit. And God's spirit tells the heart to believe. And it tells the heart to follow Jesus. That's what the spirit does. That's regeneration. The heart of stone is taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh that listens, that's soft. Not hard against the gospel, but soft. Only the power of God can do that to a human being. But Nicodemus is having a hard time with it. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So Jesus asks him a question in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Wow. That was pretty direct. Is this your arrow tonto? I mean, it's one of those situations. The man has let his religious training, his culture, centuries of tradition, shut his mind off to what the scriptures teach when he should have known it very well. Because he's interpreting it through everything he's been raised with. A lot of error, a lot of religion. He's off the track there. Is it right for him to blow it like that? No. So Jesus points to that very directly. 
It's right in the scriptures there, a new heart. It's the great work of the Spirit of God in restoring our people. And it hasn't, he hasn't grasped that yet. That's not what he's been waiting for. Like all of us who teach God's word, you know, Nicodemus has this enormous obligation to know it and handle it right, properly, not to focus on minutia or ignore the big things for little things, which is what Pharisees do. The teacher of Israel should know that God promised to give his people a new heart and a new spirit. And that should not have been a surprise. He should not be amazed. But then, you know, I think how many churches neglect the Bible, exalt tradition, or innovation on the other side. You can go wrong both ways and just leave scripture behind. Too many do that. So Jesus lays it out for Nicodemus and his brother Pharisees in verse 11. Verse 11 is the third time that Jesus says, Amen, Amen. The third statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one has ascended into heaven but the one who descended from heaven. Who's that? The Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. Now there's a really interesting little fine point of grammar here that you can't quite pick up. Verse 11. Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. So that last you where he says you do not accept our testimony, it's plural. It's more than one person he's talking to. Most of the yous here are singular. You know, I don't know why they changed the English language. Like if you have an old King James Bible, you know, like Elizabethan era English language, the King James Bible has, there's, there used to be a plural you in English. Ye, right? Ye meant more than one person. So if you're reading a King James Bible, you know, oh, he's talking to more than one person there. He's talking about Nicodemus and his friends and his fellow Pharisees here. But we don't, we don't get that today. Now some modern Bible, my Bible doesn't have it. It just says you. Some modern translations have wised up a little bit and put something like you people. Because that is the idea there. More than one person. You, your group, your crowd, the guys you hang with, the guys you uh, are on your team there. That's who he's talking to. So he says you all you people do not accept our testimony. So verse 12 has a plural you as well. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, that's the plural you as well. So Nicodemus and his brother Pharisees need to listen to Jesus. Why? Because of his authority. He just cleansed the temple because it's his father's house. He's the son of God and the son of man. That becomes very relevant in a moment. Verse 13 is pretty stunning actually. Not the first part. Because nobody's, not even a Pharisee has ascended to heaven to get God's word, right? But you know what? Someone has come from there. Someone's come from there. The son of man came from there. He descended from heaven. So Jesus isn't being subtle here. 
There's no riddles. There's no obscure language. It's an incredible claim he's making. The son of man is a messianic title from the Old Testament. In fact it's from Daniel chapter 7. It's one of the great visions that Daniel had. Daniel one of the great prophets. And Nicodemus had to know that too. It's a major prophecy about the future of the world. And it takes place, part of it takes place in heaven. In the very throne room of God. And God is called the Ancient of Days. This is what it says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. One like a son of man was coming. So you're picturing God's throne and all the angels and creatures all around. And it says one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is the classic text describing the coming of the Messiah. We know the second coming of the Messiah. So he's presented in heaven with a global dominion that will last forever on earth. He's given that by the ancient of days. And that's Jesus. He's the son of man. He calls himself that more than anything else. The son of man. Then John 3.14 Jesus says the most amazing thing of all. Drawing again on a well-known Old Testament incident. Nicodemus is hearing all this, remember. I don't know what it, he looked, I'd like to see his face right there after, after verse 13. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Nicodemus if you're looking for the kingdom if you're looking for eternal life you have to believe in the son of man. That's the way. That's the way in. That's how you enter it. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. What can this mean? The son of man is lifted up. Well it's the reason Jesus came to bring eternal life to men. But we're out of time. (laughs) So come back next Sunday and we'll go a little deeper and pick it up right here. Final word this morning. Don't confuse religion with knowing God. Don't make that mistake. They're not the same thing. Let's pray. Lord you are the giver of life. Physical life in creating us of course but because we abandoned you as a people, humanity abandoned you. You, you, you give spiritual life as well. And we who have received that life know it's all of grace because we are unworthy sinners. It's a gift to us who are unrighteous. May we all see the beauty of that gift and the enormous price that you paid to give it to us, which we'll talk about next week. And we thank you for that. We thank you for being our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.